Good morning. That's a great Bible story, isn't it? And I, I like the uh, little amplified version of what could have happened when all the languages were confused and muddled. It is quite interesting to think what that day must have been like when everyone goes back to work, thinks they're speaking clearly and no one can understand them or, or vice versa. It's quite an interesting thing to picture what chaos must have ensued in the aftermath of that day when God confused their languages. And yet what an example of trying to do things our own way. And isn't that just a summary of us as people? We so often try to live lives our own way without God. Even as Christians, we often try to live life according to our rules, the terms that we've come up with to dictate our life instead of following the ones that God's given us in his book, the Bible. And so today we are once again going to look at his book, the Bible, to see how we can apply this to live life God's way and not our own. So with that, would you bow with me and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word that so clearly speaks to us the way that you would have us to live life. We thank you, Lord, that your word from the first verse to the last so clearly demonstrates to us your desire that we live in relationship. Lord, right from the very beginning, when you, within the relationship of your triune being as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, spoke this universe into existence, even there, there was relationship. And then, Lord, you made Adam and Eve in the garden to begin this family relationship that would become all of the nations of the earth. And then, Lord, in the last chapter, we see how you, Lord Jesus, are going to return very soon to draw us into a never-ending relationship with you and with each other in your kingdom of heaven. And so, Father, we think and, uh, of this as such an amazing plan, and we thank you, Lord, that you have drawn us into relationships with each other here as a church family. And we thank you, Lord, that it is in these relationships that you've established that we have the best chance to grow, to grow up in our faith, to grow up into maturity as mature sons and daughters of you. And so, Father, we pray that as you have given us instructions in your word of how to build each other up in the faith, that we would take that seriously, that we would take this as our own personal calling that you have laid upon each one of us to not only see about having our own selves built up, but to invest in the building up of others. And so I pray, Lord, that this church family would continue to have this, Lord, not just as a one-time event, but as a way of life that we would build into each other's lives. And so we ask your blessing upon this word, Lord. Speak to our hearts, and I pray that these words would be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are concluding our series, Mentored and Mentoring. And for those of you who have been here for the previous two installments, you already know the premise on which we are building on this theme of mentorship. We began by studying one of the most practical of examples of mentorship when we see how Jethro mentored Moses, and then we looked at last week how Moses went on to mentor Joshua. Today we are going to look and turn our attention to the New Testament, and we're going to turn to the book of Titus chapter 2, and there we're going to look at one of the most practical of all examples of how mentorship looks within a church family. So if you turn there with me, the book of Titus, it's a short book, it's right near the back of your Bible, you'll have to flip around a couple of times to find it, but trust me, it's there, and if you're already there, turn to chapter 2, and let's begin with verse 1. It says, 
You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, interestingly, as we set the stage for our teaching this morning, Paul doesn't use the traditional word for teach in this verse. Instead, here, Titus is actually using a word that is better translated as talk about or speak about things that are in accord with sound doctrine. The New King James Version actually expresses this a little bit more clearly. The New King James Version says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. In other words, what he's getting at here is that teaching does not happen exclusively in the classroom or from the pulpit or in a formal setting, such as this one here today. You know, when we hear the word teaching or preaching, we usually think of it as to what's happening right now. But here Titus is referring to something a little bit different. He's talking about the casual conversations, speaking about things that are in accord with sound doctrine. And so he's saying that these sort of conversations don't happen exclusively in this setting. They happen in everyday life. There was once a young man who applied for a job at a supermarket. And the manager said to him, Yes, I'll give you a job. Grab that broom and start sweeping. Wait a minute, the young applicant replied. I'm a university graduate. To which the manager quickly replied, Oh, that's all right. I'll show you how. Ooh, you know, there's a lot of university graduates walking around with a lot of head knowledge, but not a lot of practical knowledge. In the same way, there's a lot of Christians walking around with a lot of head knowledge, but not a lot of practical knowledge. The kind of knowledge that happens on the everyday level where we live out what we've learned in our heads and we live it out through our actions in our daily lives. You see, theoretical knowledge must translate to some form of practical application if it's to be of any benefit to us. You know, you may know the books of the Bible, you may be able to rattle off a lot of scripture, but until you begin applying that scripture to your life, of what great benefit is it to you or to others if you know God's truth but you don't live it out? And it's precisely where theory meets reality, where we must discuss with each other how our faith affects and influences our daily actions. We can't just leave it for Sunday mornings. We have to live it out day to day. Now, the last two weeks, we have been focusing on the importance of establishing intentional mentoring relationships. And we've learned from Jethro, Moses, and Joshua some practical steps of what that looks like. And so, here I just want to pause to say again that as a church family, we want to begin to help foster these relationships. And there's many of them already happening. And there are many more qualified people for mentoring within this church family who are ready to take on that sort of a role. And so if you're here today and you feel like you're in a position where you could really benefit from having a mentor in your life to meet with on a regular basis, I want you to really consider that. Come speak to me and we can help make that happen. So I want to, once again, really emphasize that this morning. But even as I do so... I also want to tell you that we must be on guard against thinking that mentorship can only happen when two people sit down and say, okay, now we're mentoring, right? If we leave mentorship only to that arena where it's completely spelled out that now we're having a mentoring conversation, then we are missing the bigger picture. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7, If you open your bulletin, you'll find it there as our call to worship. Here we see this great picture of the primary way that God intends 
for instruction to be passed on from one generation to the next. Let's read it again. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Let's stop right there. Upon your hearts. Right away, he's getting beyond the head level. It's not just a matter of memorizing the Ten Commandments. By the way, who's got them memorized? (laughs) A few people. A few are kind of going, I could get seven or eight. (laughs) Right? If we really hashed it out here, I bet you some of you who think you know you've got them might miss one. I know I've done it a few times. Now, head knowledge is one thing. You can memorize the Ten Commandments. But right away, God's saying, these things that I've given to you, the law, are to be upon your hearts. It's to go deeper than the head level. It's supposed to settle down that 12-inch transfer from the mind to the heart. They're to be upon your hearts. It's not just something to give intellectual assent to. It's something to embrace with your whole being, symbolized by your heart. These settle in and you wrestle with them, saying, how can I most faithfully apply the Ten Commandments on every level of my existence? That was the command given to them, that it be upon their hearts. And then from there, it's not supposed to just remain upon your heart. Look at what you're supposed to do with it. Impress them upon your children. Impress them. That's a strong word, impress them. It's not just saying, tell it to them once in a while. No, this, this idea of impression Right? It goes deeper. It's, it's like following a mold. You get out uh, a batch of cookies and you want to make Christmas cookies. I don't want to start making you think about winter or anything yet. But just think ahead. It's coming. I'm sorry to say, but it's coming. You're going to be making Christmas cookies. And a lot of you are going to have those neat little Christmas tree-shaped cookies, right? I love those with the green icing on them. They're, they're great, right? We all enjoy a good Christmas cookie. But you don't make that Christmas cookie into... Uh, the shape of a Christmas tree by, by getting the dough out and handcrafting each one by hand. No, you have a mold, right? You have a Christmas tree mold. And you take that mold and you press it into the dough. You impress that shape upon this malleable substance, this cookie dough, and out comes the perfect shape, right? This is an impression. It's the same way with children. They are malleable at a young age. They can be shaped one way or the other, for good or for bad. And so you are to take that, that very easily shaped young life, and you are to impress the teachings of God upon them. Take the template, the mold of Scripture, as it's lived out in your life, and you impress it upon your children. It goes on to say, Talk about these things when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, don't leave it for just the synagogue or the temple. Don't just leave it for the teacher of the law and the rabbi. No, you, around your table. When you're walking down the road, going on your way to work, when you're in the field, when you're you're, you know, getting up in the morning, when you're going to bed at night, talk about these things. Don't just leave them in, in one compartment of your life. They are to encompass all areas. You see, the Hebrew people were instructed to not have a spiritual, secular divide in their lives. They were not to just have the the teachings of God to be something that they kept only on the Sabbath. No, it was every day of the week. You see, one of the things that we often do is we categorize our lives into church and non-church compartments. We like to make boxes. This is the spiritual box. This is, you know, church. And this is where I'll talk about spiritual things. But now this is real life. This is work. This is the coffee shop. This is, you know, 
this, I, we don't talk about spiritual things here. We don't talk about things of God here. God's saying, no, uh uh the exact opposite. I want you to talk about these things as you're going down the road. You meet somebody, you're traveling together. These are the sorts of things we're supposed to be talking about. You see, some of the greatest sermons that this world has ever heard did not come from a pulpit. You believe that? Some of the greatest sermons this world has ever heard did not come from a pulpit. They happened in everyday conversation. You see, some of your moments of greatest influence may well occur when you are least aware of their significance. You know that? The time where you may have made the greatest impact on someone's life, you may have been completely oblivious to it because you were just living your life. You were just talking about the things that that were on your heart that day and they happened to be something of the Lord and that person who you were speaking with, it struck something right in their heart that made an impact because you were just living it out. I had one such incident that happened to me and it just came to light actually within this past month. This past August, a couple of months back, while I was the chapel speaker at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp, the very first night, I noticed a tall, thin young man, probably in his mid-twenties, who would just slip into the back of the chapel as the service was beginning, and he'd just sit there in the back row, and he was evidently someone who was just visiting, because I didn't recognize him, he wasn't a staff member, and There was nothing else about him that made him stand out to me that he belonged there. So he was obviously just visiting specifically to attend the chapel. And once he was there, he had this large study Bible and this big notepad that he would pull out. And I could tell that he was listening intently to what I was talking about. And he'd be sitting there scribbling notes. And then afterwards, he'd even be sitting there just pouring over his Bible. And it just sort of caught my attention, but I never had the opportunity to actually speak with him. It wasn't until Tuesday that... We ended up meeting in the hallway in the back area of the building and we, we met in the hallway and he came through the door and I was about to leave and we stopped about, you know, three, four feet apart and he just stopped and he stared at me like he knew me and he just says in this big voice, Danny Greening. And I'm thinking, who are you? And he looks at me with that recognition. He clearly knows who I am. And i got to say, at this point, some of my old training kicked in. You see, this isn't the first time this has happened to me. <laughs> Especially when I worked at camp, it almost seemed like every time I'd go for a trip to Brandon, I'd just be in the mall or wherever, and there'd be someone yell my name, and I'd turn around and see some young person, and they'd be coming up, and I'd be they'd vaguely familiar, but I'd never remember their name. And so I'd get really good at saying things like, Hey, you! <laughs> hey, how's it going? And I got really good at avoiding the use of names. But when this guy meets me in the hall, there was really no opportunity for me to be vague with the names because he clearly knew mine, he clearly knew who I was, and thankfully he spared me the awkwardness of having to say, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, and he, he just says to me, you might not remember me, but I was one of your campers. And I said, oh, of course. And then he says, it's Conrad. And I'm like, Conrad, okay, now this is starting to make sense. It's starting to become familiar. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went on in my head, and I just blurted out, you were the kid who did staff dishes every single meal without fail. In fact, he did staff dishes so often that I finally told him, Conrad, 
you don't have to do staff dishes for this meal. You go outside and just go play. Be a kid. Don't do the dishes. And he's like, no, I like doing the dishes. I was like, what's wrong with you? But anyway, so I remembered who this was, and I also remembered that he played piano, and he played piano beautifully. In fact, he would often, in between uh, skills, come inside the chapel and just sit, sit down and play, and he was very, very gifted. And so it finally came back to me. And then finally, once we'd flushed out who, uh, who he was, we both laughed and we had a quick chat. We didn't have a lot of time to catch up. But we continued that conversation as the week went by, and finally we ended up making arrangements, uh, arrangements to meet for coffee the following week after camp. And so we met for coffee, and it was there that he told me something that I had done way back over 12 years ago that he had never forgotten. And so I'm kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> what did I do? Because I'm just thinking back to what I might have done as an 18-year-old that he never forgot, and I'm thinking of, yeah, this might not turn out so well. But he continued, and he told me this story. It had been just a regular day at camp. This was back when the trampoline was still there, and there had been a few campers sitting in this group around the trampoline, and there were some of them waiting for their turn to be the next ones to go on. And I'd been one of the supervising counselors at the trampoline, and so I was there with the group with another counselor, and we'd been just talking joking around with the campers. Apparently, I had started talking about how amazing it is that God can choose anyone to serve him and to lead others, and how that even related to my life, that I was in awe of how God had been using me to help influence others. And then, as if to make the point of this, I had reached out my hand and I had said something like, it's almost as though God reaches out his hand and says, I choose you. And for whatever reason, out of this group of campers, I had reached out and placed my hand directly on Conrad's head when I had said the words, I choose you. Conrad told me that the moment my hand had touched his head, he had felt this jolt run through his body. The shivering sensation had gone from his head to his toes. And when he had heard these words, I choose you. It had made a significant impact on his life. And to this very day, he had never forgotten that moment when, for whatever reason, I had reached out my hand, placed it on his head, and said, it's as though God says, I choose you. And you know what? He tells me this story, and he thanks me for doing that. And as he tells me this story, I'm racking my brains trying to remember this moment that had had such an impact in his life, and I couldn't remember it. I couldn't recall having done that. You see, what God had used as a significant moment of calling in a young man's life, even though I had been completely oblivious to it, God had still done it through my hand. You see, some of your moments of greatest influence may well occur when you are least aware of their significance. Never assume that simply because you don't see yourself as a mentor that your life has no influence on others. In fact, I would suggest that each of you present here today has far more influence on the lives of others than you could possibly imagine. Each one of you has a significant amount of influence in the circles in which you are living your life right now. You may not realize it, you may not see it, but I'm here today to tell you that it's true. You are an influencer. 
You can be a mentor to someone else. Do you believe that? You see, God wants to use us. And what I've learned from Conrad's story is that when a person is simply dedicated to loving and serving God, and then loving and serving other people, God will use them, whether they realize it in that moment or not. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it's just a great little nugget of a verse in the Bible that makes a profound statement. It says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act, in order to fulfill his good purposes. It is God who works in you. Now, think of a mentor's role as being a conduit of God's power into the lives of others. Just like there are conduits that channel electricity into your homes so that we can turn on the lights so that we can see, God uses the conduits of godly mentors to channel his power and his light into other people's lives as well. You see, whatever Conrad experienced in that moment when I placed my hand on his head was not from Danny Greening. It was not from my own power. I was simply, even in that moment, an unknowing conduit of God's power that he used to fulfill his good will, his good purpose in a young man's life. A moment that made an impact that helped shape the course of his life. But now in order for us to be the best possible conduits for God that we can be, there are some very practical things that we can and must do to ensure it. So now let's turn back to Titus chapter 2 and continue. Here, Paul writing to Titus gets very practical, and he basically, in broad strokes, covers all of the major generations. He covers old men and old women, and then he covers young men and young women. Let's begin by focusing on older men in relation to younger men. Verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Then let's skip ahead to verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now first, don't make the mistake of assuming that older men means old men. Okay? He says older men, not old men. You see, I used to make the mistake of reading this verse and assuming that it meant old men. So in my mind, I'm thinking this only applies to men 70 plus. Right? If you're in the 70 plus category, this teaching's for you. But no, that's not actually the case. He says older men. So let me get right down to what this is actually saying. If you are a man, okay, so that's covering about 50% of the congregation here today. If you are a man and you are older than 18 years of age, then catch this. You are one of the older men that Paul is writing about because you are already older than an entire generation of young men that are looking up to you for an example. If you are 19 or 20, you have entered the adult years of your life. And now there's an entire generation of young people, younger than you, who are looking up to you. And guess what? As a 10-year-old, if you're 20, you're old. <laughs> Isn't that true? Man, I can think back to when I was 8 or 9 years old, and I saw someone in our youth group who was 16. They may as well have been 90. 
they could drive. Right? So when, when Paul is saying older men, don't just put this in the category of those who have gray hair on their heads. Yes, of course he's referring to them. But he's also referring to those of you as men who have entered the adult years of life. This teaching is applying to you. Older men. This is, this is for us. Now, here we go, and I want to just say that when we consider this example of older men, we as a church family are indebted. I mean indebted. Our very souls are indebted to great men of faith. Those both present and those who have already passed on to heaven. We stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of men of faith who lived it out in their everyday lives in such a way that it was passed on to us. They lived out their lives in an authentic manner and many, many that we are still indebted to living right here in our midst today that we need to acknowledge, the older men in our congregation who have set the example for us. But now, here is what happens. Even as we recognize those older men of faith that we are indebted to, We, as the younger men who are growing into that category day by day of older men, and I include myself in that, I just had another birthday, i got to admit, I am slowly growing into that category. You know, I'm a lot older than I was when I started preaching here. I realize life passes by more quickly than you ever imagine. You blink once, you're married, you blink twice, and you got two boys. You know, and I can't imagine blinking three times and how fast that's all going to pass by. Right? That's how life goes. And so we must recognize that as we grow into the category increasingly of older, it now begins to fall on us to be those men of faith who will continue to mature, will continue to teach, to mentor, and to set the example for younger men than us to follow. So older men, whether you like that label or not, you as men are the leaders of your families You are the men that God has appointed to set the direction for your family, for your wife, for your children. You are the example. You are the one that God has placed in their lives. Your influence is tremendous. Never sell yourself short. You are the influencers of your family's culture. You will set the example. You will set the tone. Just as Joshua did, as we think of the example that Moses was to Joshua... And we go to the end of Joshua's life. Imagine the whirlwind of his life conquering Canaan. Then coming near the end of his life, he realizes that he's going to pass away soon. And he looks at the entire people. He gathers them in an assembly and he says to them, Now, you choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's the example of a leader. A man who knows what God has called him to do. He can't decide for the nation, even as their leader. He can't decide for them, but he can and will decide for his family. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Men, you set the example. You will set the tone for your family. Embrace your role as a leader, knowing that God will help you. He will give you the guidance. Trust in him and lead well. Lead well. Your family's future is depending on it. This church And its future is depending on it. This community is depending on it. This world is depending on it. Because my friends, today I can tell you, without any 
any uncertainty, right now Satan is primarily focused on destroying families. He is destroying our civilization, not by attacking the leadership specifically, he is undermining the social fabric of our country and our Western way of life today by destroying families. You have only to look at the landscape and to see how divorce and infidelity and all of the things that go along with it are wreaking havoc in our world today. And so simply by establishing a good, godly family where you love your wife, men, you love your wife, You love your children. You set the example for them in the integrity and the way you live your life. You are countering the dark forces of Satan in this world by raising up godly children who will serve him and to go on to do the same. So lead well. Lead well, men. Now let's turn over to the list of instructions for the young men. I want you to take note of how long the list is for the old men and how short the list is for the young men. For the old men, there are six instructions, whereas the young men get how many? Just one. (laughs) I love this. It points out a very important truth. The one instruction for young men is this. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That's it. Why is that? Why do young men only get one instruction? Be self-controlled. Well, I believe the reason is that self-control for young men is so vitally important because everything else will take care of itself once this one thing is fully developed. Notice that self-control is also listed in the instructions for the older men, right? They are also instructed, it's right in the middle, be self-controlled. I believe that the centrality of this command for the older men is emphasizing the fact that the other five characteristics of being temperate, worthy of respect, and being sound in love, faith, and doctrine, mastering those things or maturing or growing in them in in almost any way is impossible without having self-control. Because to develop any one of those things, you have to learn to discipline yourself. You have to learn to be in control of yourself. That means your thoughts, your tongue, your actions, everything. You need to be in self-control. You need to be self-disciplined to really grow in these other five areas. And so for the young man, this is why the one thing is emphasized. If they gave them the whole laundry list, they'd say, I quit. I can't do it all. No, just work on one thing. We're going to keep it really simple. Work on being self-controlled. In other words, for a young man to pursue any of the other five things, it is futile until you first learn to control your impulses, your temper, your anger, your tongue, and your sexual appetite. You see, having been a young man not so long ago, I know from experience that young men, yes, this is hard to believe, young men are frequently impulsive, believe it or not. Young men are frequently indulgent, volatile, reckless. I know that's hard to believe, isn't it? I'm sorry, young guys, I'm picking on you today. But I hate to say it, that when I was a young man, I was terribly reckless. And I know a lot of young guys today who are as well. You see, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, makes clear the importance of self-control. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it for you. Proverbs 25, verse 28. This is one of those verses that I have underlined in my Bible. It says this, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken down, defenseless. 
You are defenseless. Your walls are broken down. So is the man who lacks self-control. As I look back on my own life, I am absolutely astounded, amazed at the grace and mercy and patience, long-suffering that God has shown me as a young man who lacks self-control. Man, the, the, just the, the pain I inflicted on myself and others simply from being out of control of my own emotions, out of control of my own appetites, out of control of my own words that I'd spew out of my mouth. I could inflict so much pain and damage. But as I learn and still am learning self-control, this is like building up my defenses. It is building up a wall that ensures not only my own protection, but catch this, men. This is also ensuring the protection of the people that you love most. You see, those walls of self-control aren't just encompassing yourself. They're encompassing your family. Think about this. The man who lacks self-control, what kind of harm can he cause to the people he loves most? I want to draw your memories back to an old story. King David, a man after God's own heart. A man who God anointed, called to be a king. The best king, arguably, that Israel ever knew. He had a moment where he saw a beautiful woman that was not his own wife, belonged to another. And in that moment, he lacked the necessary self-control to say no. To avert his eyes, to look away and say, she is not mine, I cannot have her, I cannot pursue her. I'm going to look away. But instead, in a moment where he lacks self-control, he looks at something that he cannot have, that he should not have, and he says, I want her. And as king, he has the power to make it possible. And what happens? He wreaks havoc on his own family. He wreaked havoc on Bathsheba's life. He had her husband murdered. And we see the consequences that followed because his guard was down. His walls crumbled down in that moment. His self-control was gone and the enemy came swarming in and wreaked havoc on his family. Men, these walls of self-control are not just circling yourself, they're encircling your family. They're encircling your church. They're encircling your community. Are you building up your walls or are they down at the ground level where just any old attack can make its way in? Men, build up your walls of defenses. You're protecting not only yourself, but the ones you love most. Now we're going to turn to older women and younger women. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5 says this. Read along with me. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. There's a whole lot packed into these verses that it would take a lot more time than we have left here this morning to unpack. I'll simply summarize to say this. Older women have a wealth of wisdom to share with those who are younger than them. And as much as I hate to say this, the same lesson of what older means for the men also applies here as well. Uh, I know, if you're, if you're a, want to consider yourself a young woman, it's going to hurt you a little bit this morning for me to call you an older woman, right? But I'm not saying an old woman, just an older woman, right? Once again, if you're in the adult years of your life, you are an influencer to those who are younger than you in that younger generation. And so you already, as an adult woman, whether you're in your 20s or whether you're in your 70s or in your 80s, 
You have a wealth of wisdom to share, a wealth of life experience that you can pass along to help younger women to grow up to learn how to love their husbands, how to be a good wife and mother, how to love your children, and how to pass along these things that it takes to build up and nurture your family. And so we are once again indebted to the women both present here today and those who have already passed on. We stand on their shoulders. We stand on incredible shoulders of faith of these women who have set an example for us in the way that they live their lives. The wisdom that they live with every day in the practical way that they live out their faith in everyday ways. And now this morning I'm going to throw a little curveball. And rather than me talking about specific examples of that within our church, I've asked Barb Peacock if she would come up to the front now. And she's going to share with us just a snapshot of a couple of examples of ways that the older women of faith within our congregation have made an influence on her life. And I hope that it's an inspiration to us as we hear some of these stories. So Barb, please, would you come share those with us? Well, good morning. And as the subject and the message today has to do with mentoring, I'm, I'm a perfect example because I'm 73 years of age and I still have a mentor. And that may sound silly, but for those that don't know, I've only been a Christian a, a short time. So um, I want to read something that's a proposal that was made up as a mentorship, for the mentorship program. And it says, The effective church is one that is mentoring building relationships and teaching its members by other caring people who are themselves being discipled, equipped, taught, encouraged, and fed. Now, as I say, I had a mentor, or have a mentor still, but for kids growing up in a Christian home, you all, they already know who God is. I mean, you, you know, you went to Sunday school, I assume, and, and family teachings and whatever. But for me, I, I knew nothing of God. I knew nothing of the Bible. Um, and so I needed someone to bring all of this to life for me. And I was very fortunate to have a lady who had taken me under her wing, so to speak. And we talked, and, and uh, not that long afterwards, I became a Christian. But a lot of our conversations really didn't have anything to do necessarily with the Bible or God but it was listening to her talk um, about herself, maybe, or she answered questions that I would have asked. Um, and I learned how she lived her life, of how she raised her family and her now her grandchildren. She has a big part in that. And um, that's where, what I learned from her, was, was how to be a Christian, I guess, um, the things to do, um, and the big thing about being a Christian is it's not just a Sunday uh, situation. It's a case of living with God every day in your life. And that takes uh, something very special, I think. And this lady has that. She lives every day with God in her life, and you can see it in the, the way she uh, participates in community things, in her family things, in church things, and that's what I've learned from having a mentor. And I will forever be thankful for her. 
And, of course, you all probably know who she is, and her name is Erna Hyde. And, but all of you sitting out here that have, have been here since I've been here, um, all of you in some way or another have affected me deeply. And I'm looking at one lady who I'm sure she has no idea that she has mentored me at all, and that's Mrs. Harms. When I first came to the church, um, I would come down to take my seat, and for some reason or other, I stopped, and I would say, good morning, and how are you? And that went on for a while, and then one morning when I came down to say hello to her, uh, she stood up, and she looked me right in the eye and gave me a hug. And I know that in her heart, she cares about my spiritual health and as I care about her. So, you know, people are doing things for you without you realizing it. Uh, and I didn't really think about it either, that I was being mentored, but, but she has done that for me. Um, we have so many people here who, in this church who um, have all the qualities that, that Danny has talked about, all the, the, the things that you can do for one another, and that's, that's what a church family is all about, I guess. Um, Reuben and Linda, ever since I became one of the moderators, uh, I've spent a lot of time with them, and I know that my spiritual health is at the top of their list, too. And I certainly appreciate that. And, and um, again, you know, whether they realize the effect they've had on me or not, I don't know, but it's there. Um, there's a number of people that I can speak about. Another one is Peter Hyde. He spent 20-some years in, in uh, municipal government, working with municipal government, and um, he's, which has meant he's gone beyond the church out into the community to do this work. And when we're in the shelter of our church, we can all say we're Christians. But what we need is outside of our church, uh, within our community, to be able to say, I am a Christian. And we need people to know that. And so that kind of work is what brings that attitude forward. I go back to the, to the hug. Um, I used to think of a, of, of a hug as just wrapping your, your arms around some sort of warm body. But it isn't now. It's, a, it's the joy and, the, and the, um, just the love that you feel for that person knowing that both of you are sharing in the love of God. And that's, that is so powerful. And, you know, when you, when you look out at a group of people and they're with a church family like we have here, um, when I think of any one of you, the next thing that comes into my mind is God. And that, that's true mentorship. That's as good as it's ever going to get, because when someone can remind you of the Lord, then that's great. Um, we have one of, the, of our, our favorite mentors right here, and his, his messages every Sunday are what keeps us going, um, and he is mentoring us in ways that, um, well, I don't know how to describe it really. But um, we are so, so blessed to have Danny here. Um, so I'm just um, 
so proud to be, and I'm not supposed to be proud, but with a name like Peacock, I always say, what else could I be? <laughs> but um, I just love this church, and, and I love the people, and um, yeah, just uh, the more we can do for one another, the better, and that's, that's what we're here for. You know what the great thing is, is that Barb was giving her speech from the category of the young women. (laughs) Which once again shows us that it's not how old you are, it's how far you've come, which determines our maturity as Christians. And what she described is a perfect exclamation point to conclude this series today, that we as a church family don't want to look at mentoring as just an event Not just something that we do once in a while when we say, now we're mentoring, now we're getting together. Mentoring is a way of life. We are here to make disciples. Not just of those outside of the church, but we are here to disciple one another. That all of us can grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. Building up this body of faith for God's glory and the betterment of this world. Because we are God's plan to change this community. He's not waiting to call in an evangelist. He's not waiting to parachute in Billy Graham you know, 2.0. We are God's plan to change this community. That's it. Right here. His church, his plan is already in motion in this community. And it's on us. And so let's be intentional about saying, you know what, mentoring happens here. Mentoring is a way of life as we build one another up in the faith. And there's many different ways that that can take on its form through the practical aspects of everyday life. So let's be intentional about that and remember that we have great influence as we interact with one another. I hope you feel ready to continue to do this because as was pointed out, we're already doing it. So let's keep it going and let's keep growing disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you are doing in this church family. Lord, thank you for the testimony that Barb just shared with us, Lord, of how there are those right here today who are great mentors to her. And I thank you, Lord, that each one of us, even as we, Lord, are in daily contact with one another, we have influence. And that, Lord, even when we sometimes are completely oblivious to it, we are influencing others for you. And so I pray, Lord, that we would only grow in that ability to be an influence for you. That as your power is channeled through us, O oh Lord, we would, we would just embrace that. And that the things that would blunt or block your power, Lord, that we would root those things out, that we could be more faithful, that we could be more obedient, and that we could be even more useful in your service. And so we pray, God, that over all of these things, you would just blanket this church family with love. For we know, love, we know Lord, that without love, it is all futile. It is all in vain. And so, Lord, we pray that above and underneath and surrounding all of these things, you would pour your love into our hearts, pour your love so richly that it would just overflow, Lord, into our relationships all around us, even, Lord, that it would overflow to our enemies, that those who would speak poorly of us, those that would insult us, O Lord, that we would even love them and return evil with good. And so, Father, bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.